So it's Easter, and we're in the book of Esther. So many of you are going, why? In fact, I've had many of you ask me, why? Why are we in the book of Esther? When we preached Ecclesiastes their year, many of you said, why? Why would we preach Ecclesiastes? So, um, well, I don't have an answer. That's just what I believe that we're supposed to do. So that's where we're going to be. And um, I think it's an exciting book. Uh, the title today is The Hiddenness of God, and as Christians, we are full of hope because we know God is always present, and that's what I want us to see. We're going to walk through the book of Esther, we're going to see how that connects to Christ and Easter, and we're going to see how not only in Esther and Easter, but God is present at all times and all places. Many of you might remember on April 8th, 1966, the Time magazine cover that said, Is God Dead? If you saw, it's probably one of the most famous Time magazine um, that were printed. I don't know if you've questioned that. I don't know if you've asked that. But maybe, as Esther even mentioned in her testimony, you've asked the question, where is God? Maybe it's not as God dead, but, but where is he? Okay, I think he's alive, but how come I don't necessarily see him? I grew up in church. Uh, kind of every time the doors were open, that's where we were. Maybe that's like you. Uh, I remember hearing the story of the ten plagues. You know, God bringing the ten plagues upon the Egyptians, freeing his people. I remember the parting of the Red Sea. I remember as Israel walks around Jericho, blowing their trumpets, and the walls come crumbling down. When we go into the New Testament, we see Jesus walking on water. We see him taking a few loaves and fishes, multiplying them to feed thousands of people. We see that Jesus, Jesus raises the dead, heals the blind, makes the lame to walk, casts out demons... I mean, from the Bible, and if you grew up in junior church and, bi and Sunday school and VBS and all those things, we know what God can do, right? I mean, we love the stories where God demonstrates his power and presence. But if we're honest, we don't see many of those obvious acts today. We don't necessarily see God revealing his power and presence in ways that walls come crumbling down or red seas are parted. In fact... There are many things that might cause us to question, where is God? In fact, um, just in the last couple of weeks, so we're not even zooming out farther to the rest of, the, or to all of this year or last year, um, but just within the last two weeks, uh, there was a couple of girls who were almost abducted here in Olympia. 33 people were executed by ISIS. Chemical attacks have begun on Syria. Christians were bombed, and our Christians were killed in bombs that were put in... Um, in Egypt last week, if you remember, we mentioned that bombs were placed underneath the seat. So just like we're here today, and, and during the time when they're gathering and singing praises to God, they detonated the bombs and, and Christians were killed. This last week, the United States has dropped the largest non-nuclear bomb in Afghanistan. I mean, if we're honest, we live in scary times, right? I mean, it's regularly people like will come up to me or if you're a young parent and, and they kind of say things like, wow. It is difficult raising children today, or I'm glad we're not raising children today. I mean, it's very obvious that there's difficult times that we're living, and often we say, where is God? And so today we're going to be in the book of Esther. We're going to look at how this question is addressed. Now, this is an interesting book. This, this book takes place about 100 years after Israel is taken into exile by King Nebuchadnezzar into Babylon. Babylon since has been overcome, and now Persia is the dominant kingdom. In fact, it, it covers almost the entire known world. The Persian kingdom is so large, it has 
four capitals. Susa is one of the main capitals, which is where the primary situation takes place in the book of Esther. It's around 480 B.C., so about 500 years before Christ had come, about 2,500 years before now. Some of the Jews have gone back to rebuild the temple, if you remember the story of Ezra. And so there are Jews who are back in the land of Israel, yet everything is still under Persian rule. What's interesting about this book, it makes no mention of God. The word God is not mentioned at all. The land is not mentioned. The temple is not mentioned. Everything that directs our attention to who God is is noticeably, intentionally absent from this book. And it's pure literary genius. The obvious absence of God makes the presence of God incredibly obvious as we go through the book and that's what we're going to see today throughout the book there are numerous coincidences and reversals that all reveal the presence of god as he silently guides and intervenes in all events in fact the book of esther was so incredibly so incredibly powerful so incredibly powerful so incredibly reveals the power of god's presence that in world war ii it became one of the most cherished books of, uh, of the Jews, particularly those who were living under the tyrannical rule of the Nazis. They clung tightly to the message of the book. In fact, it was so powerful in giving hope that Hitler banned the reading of Esther and anyone who was found reading it was put to death instantly. One author said, the world may look senseless, un- may look like a senseless unfolding of injustice and fate, but below the surface is the invisible but providential hand of God orchestrating all things to accomplish his purposes. That's what we're going to see today. We're going to see that God is present at all times in all places. We love to see the miraculous. We love to see that's not necessarily how God usually works. We're going to see that in every event, small or big, God is providentially guiding it all for his glory. And in the book of Esther, he's guiding all events to the birth, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So let me pray, and then we're going to dive into the book of Esther. Father, give wisdom today. Give wisdom to me as I preach. Give, give wisdom to us as we listen May your spirit just work in a powerful way. As we read this book, as we read your word, inspired by you, that we would know you, that we would understand your love and your presence, and how, God, you are with us, and how, God, yes, as Esther said earlier, you work all things for the good of those who love you and for your glory. We know that. Now help us to see that in Scripture. God, give us faith today. Increase our faith. If there's anyone here who has not believed in you, I pray that just as we look at your word, God, you would give grace and they would know you and they would love you today. In your name, Jesus, amen. I'm going to start. I'm going to give you the main characters and then we're just going to walk through the entire plot of the story. We're doing a whole book so we can't cover every single detail. There's a lot of amazing things we're intentionally leaving out today. I encourage you to read the book later. Um, But here's the, the main characters. We have King Ahasuerus, which he is also known as Xerxes. I will use that name because it's much easier for me to pronounce. He is somewhat portrayed as a fool throughout the book. 
Haman is the antagonist. Out of anger, he will try to create a plot that will destroy all the Jews. And on a side note, he's an Agagite. Now, that's just a little footnote in the book that only if you kind of know the history of Israel means anything at all. Well, an Agagite, it comes from King Agag, which is from the Amalekites. And under the reign of King Saul, he was supposed to wipe out the Amalekites and completely and utterly destroy them. But King Saul didn't. And so we have a descendant, which eventually we find out one of the descendants is Haman. And we're going to see that it's because of this hatred he has for the Jews that then it's going to stem into a destruction of all the Jews. And then we have two other characters. We have Mordecai and Esther. They're two Jews, and they're going to be used by God as his instruments for bringing about salvation to the entire Jewish nation. So if you have your book, we're going to walk through. I will direct us to a few parts where we will especially read. We'll read almost the entire chapter of uh, Almost the entire uh, chapter 6, so that's primarily where we'll be when we read, but we'll be making our way chronologically through the book. Chapter 1, the book begins with highlighting the king's splendor and glory. We're told that he's holding a 180-day feast. Now, that's a party. Now, in our house, it's pretty cool if you have a birthday in our house. We like to celebrate for a month, and and it's pretty cool, Uh, but a 180-day feast followed by a seven-day feast for just those within the palace. At the same time, Queen Vashti will hold a seven-day feast for those, for the women in the palace. Now, on the last day, we're told the king is merry with wine. He's drunk. He's very, very happy. He's most likely engaged in some locker room talk with the other guys. They're saying, my wife is the most beautiful. No, my wife is the most beautiful. Well, King Xerxes will settle it. And so he sends seven of his eunuchs to go get his wife, Queen Vashti. He summons her to come in wearing her crown. Just her crown. So he's not honoring Queen Vashti. He's showing, this is my trophy. This this is my wife. And she refuses. She says, no. She says, no, I'm not going to do that. Most powerful man in the world, and she refuses so That does not end well for her. She's removed from uh, her title. She's no longer the queen. Now, that's a problem for King Xerxes. He's a womanizer. He has to have a queen. I mean, he has a harem of women, but he must have a king or queen. And so in chapter 2, we will see that he gathers the most beautiful women in all of the kingdom, and he's going to hold a beauty contest. And so for a year, the women will be beautified, spa treatments, mud baths, everything, you know, whatever you do. I have no idea what you do. Um, But they're going to do it for a year, and then uh, they will be paraded before the king where eventually he will choose the one that he wants. Well, we're told Esther is chosen, and we're specifically told Esther is a Jew and that she is chosen. And what we see is that she quickly begins to win the favor of every single person she comes before. And if you look at chapter 2, verse 17, we read... The king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins. So he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. We now have a new queen. Now, interesting, in verse 10 and verse 20 of chapter 2, we are told, Mordecai has told her, do not let anyone know you are a Jew. So nobody knows she's a Jew. Only Mordecai knows, so the king and everyone else has no clue 
where she is from. Now, at the end of chapter 2, we go back to Mordecai. Mordecai the Jew. And we're told he's at the king's gate where he's sitting. That's where many businessmen would, do, uh, would partake in their business. So he has some type of white-collar job there. And he overhears two disgruntled employees of the king. And they're plotting to kill the king. Well, this will not do. I mean, his, his cousin just now became uh, one of the members of, of the palace. And so he wants to protect her and protect the king. And so as a good citizen, he tells Esther. Esther tells the king. And we're told specifically, she tells him in the name of Mordecai. So king knows exactly where this information has come from. So then he writes, or he has it written in the book of Chronicles, the deed that Mordecai has done. Nothing else is done. He's not, he's not rewarded at all here. We're just simply told, little footnote, and his name was written in a book. In chapter 3, we continue to move forward, and we see Haman is introduced, the Agagite. And we see he's been promoted to second in command of all the kingdom. He's like the prime minister. He's like the vice president. When he walks, everyone falls down before him to honor him, to bow before him. And everyone does, except one man, Mordecai the Jew. And it's very specific. We're always hearing Mordecai the Jew Esther, the Jew, Haman, the Agagite. So everyone bows, but, but this one man. And so they asked him, Mordecai, wh- why don't you bow? And he doesn't answer, and he doesn't answer, and he doesn't answer. Finally he says, I'm a Jew. Okay. Doesn't mean much probably to most people as they're hearing that. The only thing we have is that if we go back in history, as we said, the whole Israel and Amalekites were a great war with one another. And so as... Haman knows this man's a Jew and the people of Israel. Well, they almost wiped us out. So he's infuriated. He's angry. And so in chapter 3, verse 5 and 6, this is what we read. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with furies. But he disdained to lay on hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman, fully aware this man is a Jew, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. So now the destruction of the Jews is being planned. And so now how is Haman going to figure out when to destroy them? We're told he's going to cast lots, which means that he is going to basically take dice and he's going to roll them. He's going to figure out the month and the day that they will be destroyed. And it just so happens it falls on the 13th of Adar. We're there in the month of Nisan, which is the first month. Adar is the last month. So we have 12 months until the destruction of the Jews. So Haman acquires the ring of the king, and he writes letters. They're sent to all 127 provinces on the king's horses, and everyone is made aware on the 13th of Adar, you can take your sword, you can go next door, you can kill your Jewish neighbor, and you can take everything that he has. And we're told that there is confusion within the city. So to put this in perspective, if the Jews are killed, then there is no Messiah. If there's no Messiah, that means there's no Christmas. If there's no Christmas, there's no Good Friday. If there's no Good Friday, there's no Easter. If the Jews are killed, it's not just that God's plans have been thwarted. It's that the God of the Bible is not God. It's not God. We have no God here. So either there's another God, or perhaps everyone's right, and there is no God. You see, the The story of Esther is not some rags-to-riches story. 
It's not, oh, how cute. Esther, poor little Jewish girl, had nothing, taken into exile, taken as queen. It's not what it's about at all. It's about, is God present? Does God see what is happening? Is he aware and is he strong enough? Is he powerful enough to save his people? Will God keep his promises and bring forth the Messiah or will he not? Well, in chapter four, we begin to see Esther and Mordecai create a plan. Mordecai goes to Esther and he says, look, you need to go to the king and let him know that this cannot take place. And she says, no. It's a suicide mission. No one shows up before the king unannounced. And we're specifically told she has not been summoned for 30 days. So we're left to see maybe she doesn't have as much favor as we think she does. Maybe she's not as influential as maybe we think that she is. I mean, he does have a harem of other women and Perhaps for the last 30 days, he's been completely fine being with them. And so she says, I can't go. So then Mordecai turns to her and says, God has placed you in this position for such a time as this. If you do not act, you will die. But God will surely raise up someone else to save his people. So here we just have a glimpse of Mordecai's faith. He's seeing how God has instrumentally placed her in this position, knowing that she's here for this reason. But even if she doesn't act, he knows God is faithful. And so this comes where we, where we come to chapter 4, verse 16. We read Esther's famous words as she responds to Mordecai. And she says, go. Gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So she goes. She goes before the king, knowing that cold steel could come upon her neck at any moment. But the king raises the scepter and she's spared. And the king says, what do you want? And very anticlimatically, the book is very much, it's very comical as you read the book in many ways. She says, will you come to lunch later today? I mean, you risked her life for lunch? You can just see, did you, did you, really, you risked it for this? You, it's a good lunch. And so, uh, and she says, well, I want Haman there too. And so Haman and the king will then come. Nothing really happens at the lunch. The only thing she says is, um, I want you to come back tomorrow again. Both of you come back tomorrow. Then I will let you know my full request. So now Haman leaves this first feast, and he is full of pride. I mean, he is ecstatic. I mean, think about it. The queen asked him. The king wasn't good enough. Like, it's not, not just the king. I need the king and Haman. And so he's sitting there going, I am amazing. Everyone bows before me. Look at all the money, the fame, the power I have. And he's recounting how awesome he is. And then he sees Mordecai, the thorn in his flesh. Again, he doesn't bow before him. Now, now here's a man. He has everything. He has money, fame, and power. Now, now, this is what we read in chapter 5, verse 13. This is what Haman says. Yet all this is worth nothing to me so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. So I just, kind of on a side note, you can have everything you want and be absolutely miserable. I mean, Haman teaches us this. Maybe you think you'd be happy if if you had another raise, another promotion, more money, a better house. Maybe if you gained five pounds or maybe if you lost five pounds. Maybe if you had a nicer car. Maybe there's always something. You say, maybe if I was in a relationship, or maybe if I wasn't in a relationship, or whatever it is, there's always something we say, if I had that, 
know, if you have the iPhone 6 right now, you're going, man, I'll be happy when the iPhone 7 comes out. And then the 8, then the 9, then the 10, then the 20, then the 25. I really hope they kind of change the whole numbering system. I mean, it'd be nice if they just called it iPhone something else. So, not numbers. Um, But we're always looking for the next thing to satisfy us. But listen, what we learn from Haman is stuff will not make us happy. As long as you look for meaning in things, you will be unhappy. And what we understand in the Bible and what we see uh, is that God has created us for himself. And there's nothing in this world that can satisfy our souls except the love and the presence of God. As long as we try to make ourselves the center of the story, then joy and happiness will always be fleeting. It's always be this thing that you're trying to run after, this thing that you can catch, but you can't ever actually catch it. But when we understand that God is the one who has created all things, and He is the one who is in control of all things, and the story is ultimately about Him and His glory and His Son, Jesus Christ, and that He has called us to be a part of that story, it's then that we will understand joy and happiness, and it will make itself at home in us through the power of the Holy Spirit. So Haman is angry. He sees Mordecai. He will not bow before him. So out of anger, again, it's a comical story, Haman is going to build a gallows. A gallows is not something that you hang someone on like in the, mid, in the Western movies we watch. It's a giant stake. How big would you make a stake if you want to make a point? 50 cubits high, 75 feet You won't bow before me. I'll put you at three times the height of this ceiling so everyone will see what happens if you don't bow before me. So finally, finally, Haman will be happy. Get rid of this man. Eventually get rid of all the Jews. And then we come to the turning point of the book. We come to the climax. The climax in a a story, in a narrative, is always the turning point. It's the climactic part. It's where the thing that happens, where everything after this is going to begin to reverse. And so that's what we have in chapter 6. In chapter 6, we're going to begin to see the undoing of Haman's plot. And we're going to see that actually Esther and Mordecai begin to be promoted and the salvation of the Jews will come about. And so chapter 6 is going to be amazing. Chapter 6 is awesome. I love chapter 6. It is full of action. Chapter 6, verse 1. On that night, the king could not sleep. And he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. So this is like the pastor who can't sleep, so he reads his own sermons. This is the book. He's reading the story of his own reign. I can't sleep. Just tell me what I do. Just read to me about my life right now. And it was found written by Mordecai, how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold and had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, well, hey, hey, wait a minute. What honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, nothing has been done for him. And the king said, well, well, who's in the court? Now Haman just happened to enter the, the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there standing in the court. And the king said, great, let's have, let him come in. So Haman came in and the king said to him, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman says to himself, I love this, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? So he's only thinking about himself here. So Haman says to the king, For the man to whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. Let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. 
Let them dress the man who the king delights to honor and let them lead him on a horse throughout the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robes and the horse as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, don't you want to hear this, like how he said it? Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king, you know, delights. I mean, just disdain in his words. Don't you just want to be like a fly on that wall? Like, how'd that work? The climactic turning point of the day, of the story, is a king who can't sleep. Now, maybe he thought it was perhaps because he ate too much, he had that extra glass of wine, but what we see is at this moment that the story begins to turn. The destruction of Haman comes quickly now. In chapter 7, we see that the second feast between Esther, Haman, and the king occurs. It's at this feast, Esther turns to the king and says, I'm a Jew, and there's a plot to kill all my people by this man right here. And the king becomes furious at Haman. Becomes furious. And at this moment, we're told that a servant walks in and just says, Hey, by the way, king, I don't know if this would be helpful. Just a little bit of information for you. Um, Haman built a gallows for Mordecai. You know, Mordecai the Jew, the Jew that just saved your life and, and who you just honored. Well, Haman wants to kill him. Just a little bit of information, and that, that's what we're told. And so then, Haman, or then the king says, great, we'll, hang, we'll put Haman on the stake, and we'll kill him in front of all the people. Chapter 8, we see Esther and Mordecai, they now create a plan. The king gives him, or gives them, his signet ring just as he gave Haman. They write a new edict that goes to all 127 provinces that says the Jews will not be destroyed, but the Jews are able to take up swords and weapons and defend themselves on the 13th of Adar, and actually it'll be the 14th of Adar also. Those events are reversed in almost word-for-word order as they appeared with Haman. Next, we see um, Mordecai is going to be elevated um, in chapter 8. He's promoted to second-in-command. He's given the king's robe, and there's great feasting and joy. And what's interesting, when this edict goes out, if you look at chapter 8, verse 13, this is one of just the, the most fun, crazy, kind of comical lines. Chapter 8, verse 13, we read, And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews, for the fear of the Jews had fallen on them. Now, now get the irony here. In the beginning, we're wiping out all the Jews. We hate the Jews. You take your sword. You kill your Jewish neighbor. Take all of his stuff. And now, once Esther and Mordecai have been revealed as Jews, the new edict has gone out. The fear of God has been put in them that they would now fear the Jews. And non-Jews are saying, I want to be a Jew. I want to be a Jew. I want to be these people here. And so they're, they're becoming Jews. And then what we see is on the 13th and the 14th of Adar, the Jews will defend themselves and they will kill those who attack them. After this, Mordecai is going to institute a new feast called Purim. Many of you might have heard that. The Jews will still celebrate this feast today. And it, the irony here is Pur means die. Purim means dice. And the only other place that die shows up in the book is when Haman is throwing the dice to determine when to kill all the Jews. And so now they have a feast called Purim, called Dice, so that when it appears that fate is against them, they have a feast that celebrates that God is 
for them. So this is the way the Jewish calendar works. It begins in Nisan, which is the Passover. They celebrate that they became a people of God through the act of God saving them out of Egypt. And it ends in Adar, celebrating the fact that while it looks like fate is against them, God is continually with them, preserving them, sustaining them as his people, keeping all of his promises. So the Jewish calendar is bookend by the actions of God and his grace. And at the very end of the book, we see now Mordecai in his splendor. In chapter, verse, chapter 10, look at verse 3. For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus, and he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers, for he sought the welfare of the people and spoke peace to all his people. The story is not a rags-to-riches story. It's not even necessarily about Mordecai or Esther. It's not meant to teach us how to govern better, how to be a better boss or anything like that. It's meant to teach us about God. And one of the key truths that we learn in this book is that God is always present even when it appears that he's absent. Let me just list just a few of the coincidences that we see in this book. Queen Vashti just happens to not want to come before the king. Esther just happens to be beautiful, to be chosen, and to be a Jew. Esther just happens to win the favor of everyone and become the queen. Mordecai happens to hear a plot to kill the king, and just so happens he's not immediately rewarded. The king just happens to raise the scepter when Esther enters the court, although he has not called her for 30 days. It just happens that the day to exterminate the Jews is 12 months away, giving plenty of time for Esther and Mordecai to become instrumental in the reversal of this plot and for a new edict to go forth that will save all the Jews. The king just happens not to be able to sleep the night before Haman wants to have Mordecai killed. Haman just happens to be the one in the palace when the king wants to honor Mordecai. Coincidence after coincidence after coincidence showing the sovereignty of God, the presence of God in this book. We also see many reversals. Begins with the glory of Ahasuerus, ends with really the glory of Mordecai. We see Haman is promoted and tries to kill the Jews. Mordecai is promoted and he saves the Jews. There's reversal after reversal after reversal in the book. While it appears God is incredibly absent because his name does not appear at all, what we see is he's incredibly present. One of Rembrandt's most famous paintings is called The Night Watch. <clears throat> it hangs in a museum in Amsterdam. The painting is huge. It's like 13 feet by 16 feet. And one time, two art lovers, they come in front of it. One's a student and one's a teacher. The teacher turns to the student and says, where do you see Rembrandt in the painting? <clears throat> so the student goes up to the painting. He looks at all the corners looking for the initials. Where is Rembrandt? Where is he? Put his initials in there. He can't find them. Eventually he begins looking at all the faces of the characters because Rembrandt was famous for painting his own face into the painting. So he looks and he looks and he looks. He doesn't see him. So then he almost takes out like a magnifying glass. He's just looking and all over the painting, just scouring 13 feet by 16. So he's taking a long time, scrutinizing, looking. Where is Rembrandt? Where is Rembrandt? At every small little detail. He's saying, I know he's here. I know he's here. Finally, he goes back to the teacher and he says, I, I don't see him. The teacher responds, you look for a signature, but I see the subtlety of artistic style. You look at the faces, but I see the character of the brushstrokes. 
That's why you don't see the artist, and that's why I see him in all of the painting. If we just take one part of Esther, let's say chapter 4. Esther's going to go before the king. Will she survive? Will she not? Oh, great, he raised the scepter. If that's all that we look at, we might say, wow, that's a good luck. Wow, fate was on her side. That that just happened to work out for um, for, for her good. It doesn't necessarily explain to us or show to us that God is there. But as we zoom out step by step and we begin looking at the brushstrokes of the book of Esther and we see all the coincidences, we see that God is present at every single part of the book of Esther. Now if we fast forward about 500 years to the birth and the, the life of Christ, we see that it looks like fate will also win against him. Jesus has been sent by God to save God's people, and it looks like that's going to be thwarted. Just as Mordecai threatened Haman, so Jesus threatened the Hamans of his day, the religious leaders. He did not honor them, just as Mordecai did not honor Haman. In fact, he called them sinners, and because of that, they arrested him, and they were going to have him crucified. So here's a man, he comes in on Palm Sunday a week ago, and he comes in on a donkey, and the people are praising him, saying, Hosanna, Hosanna is the king, and they're excited, and yet on Friday, he leaves by holding a cross, going to his death. He's been beaten. Now just imagine you're one of his disciples. You've walked with him for one year, two years, three years. You've seen him do the miracles. You've seen his teachings. You've listened to his teachings. You know this is the Son of God. You are excited. Jesus is God. And yet he's going to the cross. How does that make sense? Possibly you're looking up at the, at the skies and you're thinking any moment the heavens are going to part. A legion of angels will come down, overcome the centurions, destroy the religious leaders, heal Jesus and place him on the throne, freeing them from Roman rule. And then all will be made right. But it doesn't happen. Jesus dies. It seems as though God is, is completely absent. Perhaps Time Magazine has it right. God is dead. And if we just look at Friday, what else do we come to the conclusion of, right? If that's all we do, if we just zoom in on the cross, and that's all we look at, just that one small detail of all of history, then we might say, I don't know how this is good. This doesn't look good at all. But if we take a step back and we see Sunday, then all of a sudden we see Easter. And we see that the rock in front of the tomb has been rolled away. We see that the tomb is empty and Jesus has risen from the grave. Jesus has not, defeated, Jesus has not been defeated by death, but he defeated death. You see, Jesus didn't come to be saved. He came to save us. He was the rescue mission. Like, there was no point to rescue Jesus. He was the one who was rescuing It appears that sin has skewered Jesus at the cross, but in reality, through his death, he skewered sin. So you might say, well, well, why did Jesus have to die? I don't understand. If I only look at just these two or three days or this one week, I don't understand why he had to die. But if we begin to step back and we look at the biblical story, we might go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 where God has created man and woman in his image. They are made to worship him and to love him and to experience his presence. But because, of they, because they have sinned, because they've rebelled against him, they're going to be removed from the garden, away from his presence. And it's at that point that God says, but one day 
there will come a seed from the woman who will crush the head of the serpent. And so at that moment in Genesis, we begin looking. Who is the serpent crusher? Where is the serpent crusher coming from? We start looking. Who is going to bring us back into the presence of God? Who is going to overcome this sin problem? And then we begin to see that that is Jesus Christ. And that's why he came. That's what Easter is about. He has come because we are born sinful. We rebel against the kingdom of God. Now you might say, I don't really think I'm sinful. I think I'm actually pretty good. Well, if if we probably went back and looked at you at a three-year-old, did you share? Do you want to know why you didn't share? It's because you're sinful. It's not because your stuff was actually better. It's because you were sinful. You ever lost? You ever get angry? Someone cuts you off and you hate that guy. Something bad happens, yell at your kids. It's all because we're sinful. When we decide that we don't need God, when we decide we don't need his word, when we rebel against him, we do that because of sin. And what we're told is that because of sin, we cannot come into the presence of God. And there's nothing we can do to earn our way into the presence of God. How can that which is polluted become unpolluted? It can't. We might try, I think as Chris preached the other week, we might try to turn the law upside down into a ladder, and we might see if we can climb our way into the presence, but none of us are good enough. We can't keep the whole law. We're not righteous, but we're sinful. And so there's nothing we can do to get to God, and so he sends his son to us, that he would die on a cross so that we might be forgiven of our sins, that he would stand on the cross, nailed to it, taking the punishment that you and I should receive because we are sinful, and he receives it on our behalf, and we receive his righteousness. This is what chapter, or 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24 says. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that's the cross, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And we're told, by his wounds you have been healed. You see, God's power and his presence, it's not revealed by saving his son, but by crushing his son so that you and I who believe in Jesus might be forgiven and be made new and promised eternal life with God. So as we kind of move to the end, I want to emphasize one thing. I want to just make sure that before we leave, that one thing we see in Esther and one thing that we see in Easter is that God is always present. He's present at all times and all places. And when I say he's present, what I mean is that he's not only present, but he's in control, guiding and weaving all of history for his good and his glory. Now perhaps you're here and you say, well, I don't know if I I really believe that. I, I don't know that God is in control of all things. Maybe God is only in control of the big events. I think that's what I've heard many people say. Uh, All the big decisions God is in control of, but the little decisions we all make on our own. But honestly, think about that. How many many big decisions do you make in your life? Where you're going to marry, where you're going to move, what job you're going to have, like five, six decisions maybe, maybe ten. But we make millions and millions of small decisions. Small decisions like, I can't sleep tonight. I need a man to come read to me. And he reads to you the chronicles of your reign, and you see you didn't reward someone and God uses that small insignificant decision as a turning point for the entire Jewish nation 
God is not just in control at the big moments. We don't make enough big moment decisions. It's all the little moments that actually shape the big moments in our lives. This is what Proverbs 16, 33 teaches us. The lot is cast in the lap. The die is cast into the lap. But its decision, its every decision, is from the Lord. When we look at the story of Esther, we see God is present on sleepless nights, on picking of a queen, the rolling of a die. Every event we see God is present watching over his people. He's not absent at all. Just because we don't see walls crumbling down, seas being parted, or ten plagues being hailed down upon the enemies does not mean that God is not present. So at this moment we might say, okay, but, but how does that explain the whole suffering? If God's present, why doesn't he just make everything good? And eventually, he does make everything good in the new heavens and new earth. So there's many ways we can answer that. Well, we could say, we would look back at the cross, and we say, well, actually, God uses suffering as a means of good. I mean, after all, how do we have forgiveness of sins? Through the suffering of Jesus Christ. At the cross, <clears throat> we see that suffering is given meaning Suffering is powerful. It's a way to testify of the love of God. God sent forth his son, his only son, that he would die so that you and I would have life. If there's no suffering, there's no salvation. That's one way we can answer that question, which is satisfying to some. But how is that satisfying for the parents who have just buried their newborn child? Was that satisfying to say, well, God is good and he works all things for his good? And you just say, I, I just want my child. I don't really care about the rest of history right now. I don't know how this is good. And at that moment, we might come and say, well, we have a father who knows what it's like to lose a child. Knows what it's like to have his son unjustly killed, murdered. And we know that he will provide the comfort for you at this time. That's maybe how we begin to answer that. We might begin to say, you know, as we step back, we begin to see perspective. And the guy says, look, there's no way I can step back 10 feet, 100 feet. It doesn't matter if I look at the next month, the next year, the next 10 years. This will never look good, the death of my son. And how do you argue with that? It, it probably won't. I don't think there's anything we can necessarily ever say that will help a parent see that this is good. It's only when we begin to look at the biblical narrative and we step back far enough that we see that there's a day coming when the sun returns. And when the sun returns, he's going to have a feast for all those who have, who have believed in him. And he's going to gather all of them to be with them. And if you look at the book of Esther, there is feast after feast after feast. In fact, you can organize the book by its feast. There's about ten feasts. And they all point to a much greater feast. The feast of the bride and the groom. The fact that one day Jesus will return for his bride, the church. And all who have believed him, all who have loved him, will be gathered together with him to celebrate for all of eternity in a new heavens and a new earth where there will be no more sin and there will be no more suffering. And you and I who have believed in Jesus will experience maximum joy for all of eternity in the presence of God. At this moment in life, there is evil and there is good. It's kind of like if you have a clock. If a clock is going to tell time correctly, there's gears that go this way, and there's gears that go this way. Both gears are necessary for the time to be told. 
in this world, as time moves forward to the return of Christ, there's good things that happen, and there are evil things that are going to happen. Why? We don't understand all of it, not until we move back and begin to understand the brushstrokes of God. And even at that moment in this life, we may not understand why some things happen. We might have certain answers, but we might not ever see the bigger picture until that day we're in the presence of God. That's why Jesus come, so that one day we would join him in the feast. This is what Revelation 19 says. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. That is where all of history is going. And that is why Jesus Christ has come. He has come that you today would hear his word again. Now you might ask yourself, why are you here today? Are you here because someone asked you? Are you here because you had nothing better to do? Are you here because it's Easter and that's the one time you come? I mean, well, why are you here? You can probably go back and you can look at one, two, three reasons maybe happened in this last week. Or is there another reason? That God is present in all situations and it's by his providence you are here. That once again you would hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. That you would hear that God loves you so much that he sends his son to die on the cross that we who believe in him would have eternal life. And you might say, well, that's great. I'll get to that later. Well, Haman might have thought that also. He shows up, at the, uh, he shows up um, early at the palace that day to have Mordecai killed, and yet his plans are changed. He ends up parading Mordecai around. He then goes to the feast with, Haman, or with uh, the king and with the queen, and he's thinking how great he is, which quickly ends in his destruction. How quickly things turn in our life. You are not in control. The reason you are here today is not because you ultimately chose to be here. It's not because someone ultimately invited you. It's because God has providentially brought you here that you would once again hear the gospel and that you would receive him as your Lord and Savior. That is the purpose. And you might say, well, I'll do that later. I urge you, you do not know what happens in this life. There are good things and there are bad things and tragedy does strike Egyptians, uh, Christians gathered last week, remember, and were killed. As we leave this room, we are not promised at all what will happen. We are promised, though, that God's presence is with us and it will not leave us. In fact, all throughout the Bible, it's God's presence that is the motivation of his people to persevere and to proclaim the gospel. It is always the presence of God. Look at Matthew 28. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations. Lo and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The only way we obey God is through the commands of God. Nothing God expects to take place apart from his presence. If you come over to my house, you're more than welcome to come in. I urge you to use the front door. It is the way into my house. If you use another door, my dog will bite you. <laughs> he will. I actually want him to. Nobody comes into my house but through the front door. And then he's just really happy to see you. The only way we enter into the presence of God is through Jesus Christ. There is no other door. That's why he has sent him. If you're here today and you say, well, I, I don't want to believe that. 
There are consequences for that, and the Bible does not hide from that at all. All those who believe in him will be gathered together for a great feast, a feast that will never end, a feast that will last for all of eternity in a new heavens and new earth. And it will be good. And we'll experience maximum joy because we'll be in God's presence experiencing his blessing. But all those who decide, I don't want Jesus, or I don't want him now, or for whatever reason, we're told that they will be separated and they're placed in a place called hell. And God is not absent. He is there. But only his wrath is experienced there, not his blessings. Do not think there's not consequences for our actions. Haman experienced those consequences. Those who attacked the Jews 2,500 years ago experienced those consequences. We have one life to live. And we think this life is so important, don't we? We think it is so important. Look at all the things that we can do. But if we look at it, again, we step back and we look at the brushstrokes of God on how he has created all things. This time on this earth is so short. And the decisions we make here determine where we will spend all of eternity. Look, eternity is so much more important than here. I urge you to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ today. He has sent his son, proving that he is present in all situations at all times. That you would receive him today, experience forgiveness, experience his spirit in you today, and begin right now to experience the blessing of his presence. Let me pray. Father, we love you. You are good and righteous, God. And there are things that you do that we do not understand. But one thing we clearly see is that, God, you are present at all times. We see that in Esther. We see that in Easter. You were not absent, but you were so present. You were present in your son, Jesus Christ. You were present, taking the punishment that we should have received, that we could have life. And Lord, I pray that we here today, that we would know your son, Jesus Christ, that we would believe in you and that there is no other door and that we would experience that salvation and the goodness and the joy that comes in the presence of you, God. And we would look forward to the great feast, the feast that one day we will be joined to you in the new heavens and new earth to experience maximum joy for all of eternity in your presence. God, we thank you for your son. In your name, Jesus, amen. And we had one question today, uh, and then we'll go to the last song. Uh, the question just was, why does God love us? It's a good question, right? And there's many ways we could answer that. Number one, you're made in his image. Do you know that you're made in his image? Your, your, yourself, the way you live, your characteristics, not just the way you physically look, but emotionally and everything about you those points directly back to God. Ultimately, it goes back to his grace, though. He loves us because of grace. He loves us because he chooses to, not because we're worthy, but because he chooses to. So just as you, um, as you go out today, know that. Know that you've been made in his image. Know that God loves you because of that. Know that's why he sent his son. He didn't send his son for, for my dog and, and those things. He sent his son for us, those made in his image. And so as you go out, remember that God is present, and he loves you very much because you're made in his image.